0: Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with the Oddfellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. Hello everyone, and welcome to... This the last episode of Season 1 of Reading Between the Lines, the story podcast from The People's Friend. Um, my name is Ian. I'm joined just now by Angela, the People's Friend editor. Hello, Angela. Hello. We thought that we'd have a quick chat, seeing as this is the last episode, about how we thought the podcast has gone, um, our, our thoughts about it, and our plans for the future. And it would also be great um, if you could let us know what you thought of the podcast as well um, on our social media channels or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, But first of all, Angela, as People's Friend Supremo, what did you think (laughs) of uh, Reading Between the Lines?
1: Well, the first thing to say is I can't believe we've reached the last episode already because um, it just seems to have flown in. Maybe not for you, Ian, because you're the one that's done all the hard work, but <laughs> <laughs> I've um, I've really enjoyed listening to each episode as it's been released. And I think for me, uh, the most um, valuable thing to come out of it is that we've been able to unearth some long forgotten gems from the People's Friend archive, stories that have not Seen the light of day since they were first published, hundred well over a hundred years ago. So to be able to bring them back to a new audience, that has been great fun and also um, very gratifying too.
0: Absolutely, it's uh, a thing that comes up in every episode. Just about is kind of it sounds cynical to call it surprise, but kind of surprise at the quality of the writing that has been present in the People's Friend all the way um, from its first issue and quite a lot of the stories that we have unearthed here and um, had a, a great deal of fun talking about could probably slot right into the magazine today and readers would effectively be none the wiser. Um, You know, style differences notwithstanding.
1: I think it's real testament to the the staff and the editors of the the friend in days gone by, isn't it? That the quality was so consistently high right from the beginning. And I think that's due in no small part to the fact that the first editors were all literary men themselves mm. and they, they believed in the, the educational power of literature and the, the importance of providing everybody regardless of their status in life with, with good quality reading to improve and, and entertain and instruct and, Um, encourage them in their daily lives. So I think the first three editors, the two David Pays, um, father and son, and Andrew Stewart were all um, published authors themselves, all self-made men, and all of them really believed in the importance of quality literature as a force for good in people's lives. And they set the tone that we've all followed ever since. And
0: we're revisiting now and following all over again for a a brand new digital audience.
1: It's great, isn't it? The the most up-to-date technology, the most um current medium for, for consuming stories, and yet the material is in some cases 150 years old. It's wonderful.
0: And not only that, um there's plenty more to come.
1: Goodness me. We
0: uh, we're currently planning season two of Reading Between the Lines, which will uh we will start recording in a few months. Um there's so much in the archives still completely untouched waiting for me to discover it with the help of Barry and David from the archives Um, and, and bringing it to a new audience is going to be a a great deal of fun. And we're also going to be slightly slicker at it all because we've done it now for one season. (laughs)
1: Well, there's enough material in those archives to give you all the practice you need to become slick for many years to come. <laughs> um, and you've, you've only scratched the surface of what's there. Mm-hmm. You know, I've only scratched the surface of what's there in my um, forays into the archives. I do know that the 1950s are a real golden age for literature, um, certainly within The Friend. That seems the end of the Second World War, Um, the resumption of life, all the changes in society that came in the 50s, that seems to have really started a whole blossoming of superb storytelling. So there's an era you haven't even touched on yet um, that is still waiting for you to be discovered. I'm I'm looking
0: forward to it. (laughs) We're also planning to do some slightly different episodes next season where uh, we take closer looks at specific authors because we've unearthed a couple of authors that we really want to um, look at in a bit more detail but also there have been famous names have written for the friend in the past and these people are definitely worth looking at and the stories that they published in the magazine are definitely worth looking at too um so it's all looking good for friend uh, fans of friend fiction at the moment
1: it certainly is i mean you you talk about some of the famous names in there i hope it's not a spoiler to say that we've got people like anthony trollope Wilkie Collins, um, Amongst others we've got our own famous names Like Annie S. Swan Mm. And uh, William C. Honeyman So yes, lots and lots and lots Of treasures waiting to be discovered And
0: speaking of treasures waiting to be discovered We will go on (laughs) to this week's episode This week we're reading My Connemara Ghost uh, Which is attributed to an author Just by the initials J.E.M Somewhat mystically And was first published In The People's Friend in January 1910 This story will be read for you by Lucy, the Friend Fiction Editor. Over to Lucy.
2: Almost immediately after my marriage, a good many years ago now, I accompanied my husband, who was a resident magistrate, to his district, which lay in the heart of beautiful Connemara. It was a great change to me, accustomed as I had been to all the gaieties and bustle of a large city. But very soon I learned to love the delightful freedom of my Irish country life, and to feel and fully appreciate the undeniable charm of the people. The brooding, melancholy characteristic of the lovely scenery took a firm hold of my heart and imagination, and I found it easy to understand the quaint superstitions and beliefs of the peasantry. When driving along at night in our sidecar, I caught the pale, ghost-like gleam of light on a distant pool. And listened to the faint musical trickle of water in the bog, or the soft sighing whisper of the tall bulrushes, suddenly caressed by some wandering breeze. Our very unpretentious house, square and whitewashed, was rather lonely, as it stood in its own grounds, some distance from and looking down on the poor little village. So my husband was anxious that I should have a friend to stay with me when, on the last day of the year, he was obliged to go to Galway on official business, which would detain him there for a few days. However, I laughed at his suggestion that I might be afraid to stay alone in the house with only our two young maids, for I did not consider myself a nervous woman and saw no cause at all for fear. It was raining heavily when he drove away in the morning and continued to do so all day without ceasing. Unable to get out, I became heartily tired of my own company and went upstairs to bed much earlier than usual, and fell asleep almost immediately. Suddenly, I awoke with a start. Striking a light, I saw from the little clock near that it was just twelve. The very witching hour, I thought, leaning back on my pillows and feeling pleasantly inclined to fall asleep again. The wind had risen, and now drove great masses of black cloud violently across a pale, ineffectual moon. Hearing drowsily the dash of the rain against the window panes and the mournful wail of the wind about the house, I became conscious of another sound. A curious, dull, hollow roll which seemed to come from the dining room beneath. Raising myself on my elbow, I listened intently and again heard that most unaccountable sound. What could it be? Jumping out of bed. I slipped on a dressing gown and thrust my feet into a pair of soft slippers, my first impulse being to awaken the servants, but alas, I knew by experience what a difficult feat that was. Besides, I would have to pass the dining room to get to them. So, taking matches and a candle, I opened my door and went out onto the landing, and leaning over the balustrade, gazed fearfully down into the dark well of the staircase but nothing was to be seen, and all was quiet for a minute. Then again came that strange rolling noise, this time accompanied by a dull thud. I felt that I must ascertain the cause of these sounds, and with fast-beating heart and shaking knees, crept downstairs as softly as I could, when suddenly there was a sharp clink of glass, so distinct that I knew the dining-room door must be open, though no light came from it. Then a new fear seized me, and all the most horrible ghost stories I had ever heard crowded confusedly back to my memory. Could it be that some former inhabitants of the house had returned in spirit to their earthly haunts, and were now, seeing the new year in, more convivially than it was possible to do in their last year abode by pledging each other in my husband's best whisky. With hands that trembled so I could scarcely strike a match, I lit my candle and, pushing the door further open, went boldly in. The homely sounds of the clock ticking on the mantelpiece fell soothingly on my excited nerves. Raising the light, I looked apprehensively about, but neither ghost nor robber was to be seen. The windows were closed and shuttered, and the room looked exactly as I had left it. Just then I heard a soft, meow, and one of my Persian kittens came and rubbed itself caressingly against my feet. As I glanced at it, I was again startled by the odd rolling sound. Peering down into the shadows, whence it seemed to proceed, I saw an oval soda water bottle rolling along the polished floor with my other kitten in full pursuit. After cannoning against a second bottle, the first one ended its wild career with a dull thud against the wooden skirting of the wall. This then was the prosaic cause of my absurd fear. Two of these bottles had been put down at the end of the sideboard and the kittens, finding out how easily they rolled on the smooth surface, had had an exciting midnight game. Suppressing a sudden hysterical inclination to laugh, I fled upstairs again and threw myself on the bed. But the feeling of giddiness and singing in my ears and the cold perspiration that broke out on my forehead told me how very real the strain on my nerves had been. The cheerful morning sunshine was streaming in on me when I woke, and I felt greatly ashamed of my ridiculous panic of the night. But since that experience, I have been much more lenient in my judgement on the woman with nerves.
0: Did you know that the Odd Fellows has been helping its members forge lasting friendships and offering them help in times of need for over 200 years? And the good news is that it's still going strong today, with a network of 309,000 members and 121 branches all over the UK. If you find that you need a little support or advice during a difficult time, Odd Fellows can help. And if you'd like to meet like-minded people and get together for a chat, Odd Fellows can help with that too. They know that people can achieve so much more by coming together than they ever could alone. Be part of a friendlier society. Give the Oddfellows a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. They'd love to see you. Terms and conditions apply to all member benefits and services. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. Before the break, you heard My Connemara Ghost, which was first published in The People's Friend in January 1910 and attributed to an author known only as J.E.M. That story was narrated for you by People's Friend fiction editor Lucy, who joins me now. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Ian. I'm also joined by People's Friend editor, Angela. Hello, Angela. Hello. And Barry from the DC Thompson archives. Hello, Barry.
3: Boo. (laughs) (laughs) What have I told you about upstaging me? (laughs) Many, many things most forgotten. Sorry. Um, So,
0: my Connemara ghost. Probably the first place to start with this would be the somewhat ambiguous name of the author. It's attributed just to a set of initials, J-E-M. And we were having a chat prior to recording, about what we thought about the author, who the author might have been. So, Angela, you were saying that you felt that the author was a woman.
1: Yes. Well, really going by a lot of other archive stories um, at the time, when we see that the author doesn't use their full name, but uses initials or anon is another popular byline of the time, um, I I tend to think that that is because they're a woman and they don't want to be using a, a female name at a time when it maybe was a little bit frowned upon that women would be uh, writing and uh, having stories published. So so my feeling was that J.E.M. was perhaps a woman that was hiding behind um, initials and not using her full name. But I know that Lucy had quite a different view.
2: I did. When I read the story, it occurred to me that possibly the reason initials were used was because it was written by a man, um, mainly borne out by the, the very final sentence of the story, just one portion of which says, since that experience, I have been much more lenient in my judgment on the woman with nerves. (laughs) And I thought it was perhaps a little bit unlikely um, that a lady author would have penned that statement. (laughs) But that's just my own view, of course.
3: I can't shed any light on this at all, I'm afraid. I went looking for GEM and I'm So convinced that I've seen this before, but I I could find no examples. I found an M E -E J rather, who was a a Margaret E Jameson, I think. Other than that, I had a look through our business records. I looked through what we have here in the bound files, and no other examples exist. I'm sorry to say, but I will say about that last line, Lucy. It's an interesting one. I it 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 struck with me as well. It just it really kind of leapt out. as a strange phrase. And when I went looking, women with nerves is kind of a byline for an advert for Halls wine round about this time. <laughs> and I did wonder if somebody had maybe had one too many and thought, you know what, time to, <laughs> time to stick it to Halls. I've had, I've had enough of the ju- rejuvenating wine. Um, so I'm not sure, I'm not sure if, it was, if they were playing into that or not, or whether it was just that odd phrase.
0: Do you think that was additional advertising that Halls paid for? Um, so like a sub has stuck that in the end of the thing and said, ah, this'll be fine. Everyone will
3: know what I'm talking about. It's
2: entirely possible that it was added to the original story.
3: If they just put a bottle of wine instead of a, a soda, soda decanter or whatever it was, then yeah, that'd have been perfect, <laughs> wouldn't it?
0: The People's Friend, pioneering product placement since 1910.
3: Well, you never know. Um, No, I just just wonder if somebody had maybe seen this written somewhere and and thought maybe I'll I'll use that. In the last episode, we had Perridge's
0: Pills for Pale People. There were plenty of adverts for those kinds of things, and it plays a very prominent role in the story as well. Mm. So I'm starting to find a thread here of ruthless commercialism (laughs) in our activity. (laughs)
1: But I do think lines from advertising make their way into into everyday conversation, don't they? You know, people talk about 57 varieties, for example. It's maybe just something like that, that as Barry says, it was a, a popular advert of the time and and it became a phrase that, that people used. Because it is an odd phrase to us looking back from 2021, but maybe in 1910 it was perfectly common to, to talk about the woman with nerves.
3: And that would go both ways, Angela, I think, as well. Advertisers obviously want to kind of tack into the, the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. And if that's a, a common phrase, if that was something that was being used, they would appropriate that quite gleefully for their own that's right. <laughs> merciless ends, I guess.
1: <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> it's quite interesting that when we've been in the archive um, with a view to researching poetry from the earlier issues of The Friend, very often, I've found that initials are used, and I'm not quite sure why that is. It's, it's. Um, I think it's maybe more common than it was in the fiction. Would you say, Barry?
3: I think it's right across the board. To be honest with you, uh, can be any number of reasons for people to, to hide their identities. Um, I mean, bear in mind as well that some of the, the fiction and the poetry um, doesn't get any attribution at all. Mm. Uh, there's my favourite one is R and <laughs> a a regular supplier of serial stories um some in fact i saw one just the other day as i was um, researching this and all it said was by a popular author Mm. that was it usually if they have that and it'll say by the author of and they'll tell you the other titles that this person's written because i guess if you're if you're a fan of a particular title but don't really know the author that well and you've heard that you know, read a story that you really liked, and this is the way they sort of publicise this. That makes sense. Mm. One of the better-known poets, Alexander Anderson, surface man. You know, having surface man as a, a pseudonym is you know he's in quite a macho trade. He was working on the railways. He was um, he wasn't quite a navvy, but you know he was he was working with a, a bunch of burly guys. And I guess uh, maybe he just didn't want to show that side of himself.
0: So uh, on to the story. Um, one of the I think one of the most important things about this story is the setting, which is, of course, Connemara, which is a, a place on the west coast of Ireland. There's a reason, I think, that this has been chosen. I took this story to be in the vein of the kind of gothic ghost stories that were quite popular around about that time. And so I figured that setting it in a place that's sort of quite small and quite rural and reasonably far away set all that kind of stranger in a strange land stuff up that made you kind of understand the immediate trepidation that the main character feels uh, when she thinks that she's being haunted.
1: I think you're absolutely right. I think it is that sense of slightly alien world, something that's a little bit outside of the the narrator's comfort zone. Um, Connemara, I believe, was um, one of the hotbeds of the Irish Gaelic language, so it must have felt quite different from even other parts of Ireland, um Never mind um, other parts of England and Scotland. So, I think that definitely plays into the the, the way that the fear is built up. You know that that um, this is a slightly mystical land of of legend and strange happenings and perhaps otherworldly creatures. So, it all sets it up nicely for for a bit of a a ghost vibe that's going on there. Even though it turns out not to be a ghost in the end.
0: Spoilers. <laughs> it's fine. They've heard the story. <laughs>
3: Well, funny you should say that, Ian. But um, there actually is a bit of a spoiler in the magazine itself. Oh, really? Um, as written, uh, yeah. Uh, well, as written uh, on the page, it's actually my Connemara' ghost story, and the ghost is in inverted commas. Ah. Uh-huh. And this is something that I mean, I didn't get this you know the first reading, but when I went back and looked at this, I did wonder if you know that was a deliberate ploy. I mean, it felt like a spoiler. I was in two minds about this. It, you know, it seemed a bit, seemed a bit rotten to sort of spoil the surprise. But then given that this is a woman almost on her own in the middle of nowhere, uh, and this remote sort of setting, and it's you know, it's a dark and stormy night, the, the atmosphere's all there. And given that her husband was a resi- resident magistrate, I did wonder if that putting that ghost in inverted commas would not only alert readers to the fact that, you know, it's not gonna be something supernatural, but actually build the dread because mm. Resident magistrates were fairly controversial figures back then, and the fact that they were involved with any kind of legal wranglings would, you know, in some sense, put them in the crosshairs of wrong-uns anyway. So I did wonder if that was um, a deliberate ploy.
1: That's interesting.
0: Like uh, they they fear the peasantry?
3: Well, yeah, to a degree. I mean, like I say, there's some horrible stories about some resident magistrates doing the rounds at that time. I don't think they were too popular.
0: It's hard to wonder why they weren't too popular when you read the one of the first light, like a couple of paragraphs in, maybe two paragraphs into the story. Um, the narrator says, the brooding melancholy characteristic of the lovely scenery took a firm hold of my heart and imagination, and I found it easy to understand the quaint superstitions and beliefs of the peasantry. <laughs> yes.
3: Well, I mean that's not gonna that's not gonna make any friends, is it? I don't believe so. I feel so. that
0: we should
2: say that in the, the preceding paragraph it does say that um the undeniable charm of the people. So she's qualifying it. She or he is qualifying it there a little bit.
3: <laughs> she's just softening the bowl, see. I think we can all agree on that.
2: <laughs> I think so. I did feel on first reading that it did have a slightly condescending tone. Um but you know, Possibly
0: not. It's good to equivocate, (laughs) just in case. Um, There was quite a lot of stuff uh, alongside saying things like the brooding, melancholy characteristic of the scenery as she kind of continues her journey onto their new house. Um, There are lines like, uh, she caught the pale ghost-like gleam of light on a pool, and later on she can hear the mournful wail of the wind. It's all very evocative language that is designed to unsettle you, and in the least possible number of words, because it it does it all very efficiently. There isn't really any wasted space in this story, I don't think. I think
1: think it's all conjuring up that atmosphere of a sort of almost fae, otherworldly land, isn't it? Mm. Peopled by fairies and leprechauns and kelpies and all sorts of mythical creatures. So um, definitely setting up that supernatural side of things.
0: I did get a bit of a whiff
3: of the Dracula about it. I don't think that's um, a mistake either. I mean, if you look at the setting, not only is it remote, but the, the night this occurs, um, well, it's, it's hog effectively, but yeah. it's, a, it's a dark and stormy night, you know, as, a,
4: mm, as, yes.
3: a, as the saying goes. And, you know, that that automatically seems to uh, allude to gross stories. I mean, if you think about the the kind of the origins of the Gothic and the, the, the horror that we read today, they all stem from 1816, the year without a summer, when you know um, Byron and Co were at uh, Lake Geneva, coming up with their, their ghost stories, which of course formed Frankenstein and Dracula further down the line. So yeah, it's, I think it's very deliberate, and it's, it's a really—I think it does build up that tension quite well.
1: And there is something about that turn of the year, isn't there, where the the veil between the two worlds of the living and the dead is supposed to be at its thinnest. And you know, she does talk about some of the former inhabitants of the house returning in spirit to their earthly haunts and toasting the new year and the husband's best whiskey so there's there's definitely all of that gothic um ghost story tradition coming in there it's just
0: rude to come all the way back from the dead and drink someone's whiskey
3: <laughs> D- did you spot the uh, there's the scottish editor in there with
1: the whiskey yeah i did it's, it's whiskey with uh, without an e
3: yeah <laughs> But definitely the new year thing. Um, I, I did a bit more digging on that because I, I felt that I felt it was it was a deliberate ploy to have that in there. Um, I know Ian, when you uh, first sent this around you s- speculated that perhaps this was a, a filler story, mm. um, just given the length and so on. And I'm, I wasn't, I'm not entirely sure. To me, this maybe feels like a almost a holdover from from Christmas because mm-hmm. that's traditionally the time for some sort of uh, supernatural stories and certainly in 1909 there was a couple that made their way into the friend and i just wondered if maybe they decided actually we've we've had our fill but we've got this story and we'll, we'll hold it over until you know whenever we need it but the new year aspect um actually if you read through this story you see how much it plays into some of the the irish traditions mm-hmm. so apparently a big part of uh, the Irish tradition at New Year is to honour the dead. And there's also some aspect of the way the winds blow. So if it's a westerly wind, apparently it brings prosperity to the country. Easterly is bad luck. And then the last one I really thought chimed with me f- with this certainly was the the banging of bread, which is this weird custom where they take loaves of bread and hit the walls to chase out spirits. Mm. And all of these things seem to be playing into this this little story. They seem to fit, much to fit in quite a lot. So, do we think this is
0: an author then that is sort of steeped in this kind of tradition, like an author who might be maybe from Ireland or have family from Ireland and know the allusions that they're making? Because it doesn't sound then that these are are accidental. So.
3: Um, I would speculate that, yeah, I think so. I would I would certainly give the writer credit for this. I think this just it doesn't seem like it's an accident to have all these different factors playing in at once. I mean, I do love the fact as well that they've done what we now consider cliches as well within the horror genre. They've gone for the, the jump scare with the cat, which is you know, <laughs> one, of those, one of those things that now people I roll their eyes out. Film. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lucy,
0: one thing that we had spoken about relating to this story was that you could probably see it in the magazine today. Um, we, we've we kind of had this analysis ongoing with a lot of the stories over this season of Reading Between the Lines, whether or not these stories from so long ago would fit, sort of slot directly into the magazine today as it were, um, what do you think about that with this story in particular because it feels to me like something that you might read um.
2: I do days. agree, I think that we, even now we look for stories which reflect the season that we're in and um, certainly around Halloween time we, we tend to have a Halloween themed story or stories in the magazine or in the special. Um, I mean, with the exception of the fact that it, it is written in a certain style, it's it's quite a formal style. Um, it's also quite flowery, I would suggest, compared to the, the type of submissions that we receive today. But these things aside, I think it's a good story and it's actually a good read. It's a very enjoyable read and I think that even though it's well over a hundred years since this first appeared, and um, these are the elements of, of the People's Friend fiction that haven't changed. It's a great read and it's something that the readers would enjoy. Um it's also it's it's splendidly set. It's there's no spare text there at all. It's it's all told in a very a very um compact format. And yes, I th- I think definitely so, just with some subbing perhaps. To, to bring it up to date,
1: I think it's it would be unusual for us though to use a story that had no dialogue in it, which is is what this story is. Um, it's not to say we wouldn't, but it's quite a different take on storytelling from from how we do it now. Um, but I agree with Lucy. I think it it's um, a really good read.
2: I think it's quite interesting as well. But characterization is is fairly slim. That's another change, isn't it, Angela? From uh, what we would
1: have now. Mm-hmm. Yes. But but what I have noticed about a lot of the archive stories that we've looked at is they're all, probably without exception, really tightly written. Mm. You know, you said there, Lucy, there's no spare padding in it and that is that is absolutely the case that every word earns its place in the story.
3: Yeah, and I thought it was really good but the way it the was it's, it's paced as well is just one of these things that you just think, wow, how did they get so much into this, this small space? Because I think it... Ian, I think you did well to spot this on the page because I think it was just very easy to overlook this. It's you know it's, it doesn't take up a lot of a lot of room really.
0: I think it was the ghost that kind of drew me into it. It was the the title. I thought, you know, we haven't done sort of supernatural stories. That we, we don't do them often or at all in the magazine currently. And I thought this is this might be an interesting thing to explore. Uh, but quite like quite a lot of the stories that I've found for the podcast, um, you get a lot more from it than you're expecting.
2: I wonder if it would have been quite controversial of the time um, with the supernatural element, you know, perhaps with more um, traditional leadership, I wonder.
1: I don't think it would have been, Lucy. Um, From looking at the early stories in the archives, going way back to the the first years of The Friend, they had a lot of supernatural stories. Um, it did seem to be, well, the Victorians loved them anyway, mm. but it did seem to be a, a common genre for The Friend. It's really in more recent times that that we stopped printing supernatural stories. Um for a long time we we steered away from them and wouldn't have had anything that was even suggestive of a ghost, never mind, mm. you know, a, an out-and-out out ghost story. But I think um in the early days that was quite different. I think they did have. You did have a lot of quite dark, gothic, superstitious fiction going on.
2: I think in that that late Victorian time, it was perhaps the heyday of the seance and, yes. you know that sort of of theme. So that would make sense.
1: Yeah, enormously popular.
3: Well, like I said, there was a couple of uh, supernatural or what looked like supernatural stories at least in December issues um, for a few weeks before this particular story. And one was called the, the Ghost of Apple Tree Inn, which I'm quite intrigued about. I, I didn't get a chance to read it, but <laughs> I, I I'm quite keen to go back to some of these and just to. S- I'm intrigued to see what their ghosts are like. I mean, I, I can't I can't imagine they're too terrifying. Um, they must be fairly benign spirits. I would I would think, but in saying that, you know, I was, when I was looking back through some of the old newspapers, and it wasn't not one of ours, it has to be said, but there was something from 1908. I think it was the, it was the Ulster Times. It was in talking about residents of a building being chased from their homes by a ghost <laughs> so these things were reported on mm-hmm. uh, reported as fact so i guess if you're going to incorporate them into fiction um they're treated as such aren't they ghost stories like this i suppose
0: are nothing new uh they you hear these stories recounted by your own friends and relatives uh but Angela, you have one that wouldn't look out of place in this sort of story.
1: (laughs) No, this story reminded me of something that happened to me some years ago. Um, At the time, we were living in a flat and the house phone was mounted on the wall in the hall. And uh, we woke up in the middle of the night hearing voices in the flat utterly convinced that that we had burglars and went out to see what, what was going on. And our cat had obviously been playing with the telephone cord in the middle of the night and had pulled the receiver off the, <laughs> the wall. And so the recorded voice on the end was very politely saying, please replace the handset and try again. <laughs> so um, when I... The, the explanation of the Connemara ghost was that cats had been up to mischief in the middle of the night. That chimed with me, definitely.
0: They sound like they're not really good for your heart, cats.
1: <laughs> no.
0: I think I'll stick to fish. They're never, You'll never be haunted by a fish, I don't think. Oh,
1: well, <laughs> there's always a first time. But Ian, you had your own um, ghost story to tell about lights.
0: Oh, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> The, the perils of automation, this would never have happened in 1910. Um, we had been on holiday and had left timers on our lamps to convince resident burglars that we were still at home. And we came back from holiday and forgot that the timers were attached. So in the middle of the night, uh, listening to something particularly disturbing on my headphones. I listen to a lot of podcasts about supernatural stories and true crime and things like that. And I was listening to something in the middle of the night in the dark and the living room lamp came on all of its own accord. Um, and utterly terrified me. <laughs> uh, it was all I could do to not <laughs> shriek and flee from the flat and leave my wife on her own to fend for herself. <laughs> uh, I had to do that thing you do when you're a child where you kind of decide whether it's worth confronting the terrible thing that you know is lurking around the corner or maybe it's just better to put the duvet over your head and hope that it goes away. Um, I'm not going to tell you which I did because I just don't think I can come out smelling well from either of those uh, instances. Um, So I wonder maybe if that last line that we're thinking is a bit out of place is maybe to undercut all of the supernatural stuff that came before. Yeah, I wonder if it is kind of like a sly wink at the reader to say, You know, we got you, <laughs> um, with all of this beforehand, and it's just a woman with nerves. It could,
1: could well be what the, the point is there because I think there's another mention earlier on in the story of a nervous woman, isn't there? Um, she says when her husband is, is um, Worried that she would be afraid on her own. She says, I did not consider myself a nervous woman. So it's used It's used earlier in the story too.
2: I think it brings everything full circle, that final paragraph, doesn't mm-hmm. it? When you've, you've been through all the drama and all the excitement and everything's built up, it's been so superbly set. And then this sort of just gently brings you back to the present day and it's okay because... Spoilers,
1: there's
3: perhaps no <laughs> ghost there. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> but one of the things I did like as well, is that they still find time for a bit of humour. Yes. Mm-hmm. Even even when that sort of tense build-up, you know, this is talking about having to go downstairs, uh, my first impulse being to awaken the servants, but alas... I knew by experience what a difficult feat that was. Yes, <laughs> <I know. laughs> Beautiful. Not only have they set the scene and said, "No, actually, there's no re- there's no help available." You 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 actually have to go past this thing to get to the the help yeah. <laughs> <laughs> commerce um, But <laughs> waking them up is going to be an issue. I loved that. I thought it was really clever. And
1: you wondered what occasion she tried to wake the servants <laughs> on in the past, <laughs> unsuccessfully.
3: <laughs> yes, more questions and answers aren't they
0: <laughs> I feel like right at the start there's a reference to them kind of journeying to their house and she says that they went in a sidecar mm-hmm. um which just I had images of last of the summer wine in my head <laughs> it was it was already quite funny for me at that stage like with with the kind of aviation goggles and the wee helmet on and thing
1: oh i think it's a horse drawn carriage though a sidecar oh, i think oh. it's a little sort of rustic um Governess cart style thing. It
3: is a jaunting car, also called a jaunty car or sidecar. Two wheeled open vehicle, popular in Ireland. I guess we found that on Wiki. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I did wonder as well when I saw a sidecar and I thought, oh, when, when's this set? Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't get Last of the, the Summer Wine vibes, but I am now.
1: <laughs> but I think that's a nicer image, isn't it? <laughs> In the sidecar with the goggles.
3: Better than a bathtub cut on wheels, I guess, yeah.
2: I think it's interesting when you read through it, and quite near to the start, um, when it talks about striking a light, and you realise just how long ago this was. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, all the history that's passed between when this was was penned and, and where we are now. It just, you know, brings it into focus.
3: Well, with no names and no date attached to any of this, I mean, it could have been at any point in the, the 19th century, I suppose, mm. even before, actually.
0: I guess that probably brings me on uh, my my next point and possibly the point of contention for this episode, for there must be one in every episode to drive the readership up, or the listeners, rather. Um, what do we think about the narrator? as a narrator. Is she a reliable narrator? I am inclined to say no. I don't know how how prevalent the sort of literary device of the unreliable narrator was back when this was published, but I get the impression that this, it almost seems like a story that she is telling people for their entertainment. I got the kind of, especially because it was a new year story, I got the kind of vibe that she was sitting recounting this story And at some stage, she says this happened to her many years ago. Um, So not only is it possibly a thing that she's telling for entertainment, it's also possibly a thing that she's remembering from years past and has maybe built on and exaggerated and uh, kind of tooled to make it an amusing story that she can recount at parties. That's a really
1: interesting idea. It wasn't something that occurred to me, but they would, they would have been familiar with the idea of an unreliable narrator because there's one in Wuthering Heights, for example. Mm. So, wouldn't have been unheard of. Don't know how prevalent it was, but oh, interesting.
3: You're talking about somebody who's gone to bed early and hugged I mean,. <laughs> How reliable do you think she's going to be? She's been on her own in the house, rain's porn and there's nothing else to do. She's
1: got all that fine whiskey downstairs, remember? Not
3: anymore. She doesn't.
1: <laughs> Perhaps she already had the fine whiskey, and that was the
2: two bottles that were rolling around on the floor.
3: I think you're right. That's why she's made up this story. It's for, it's for the husband. It's like honestly, it was it was a it was a ghost. <laughs> that was a very fine Ricky Fulton you just did there. <laughs>
0: Um, I think it was there was a couple of kind of clues to what I thought was her not being all that reliable. But I think my favourite one was, um, she starts off the story by talking about the peasantry, as we've previously discussed, and their quaint superstitions and beliefs. Um, and you get the impression that she is this urbane city woman coming out to the boondocks. Uh, and about four or five paragraphs in it begins with, Our very unpretentious house... <laughs> which seems like to me that she's trying awful hard to reduce that distance between her and the people in the story. I think
2: when I read it initially, it it did seem to me that it was perhaps written from the perspective of an older lady looking back and that maybe her memory wasn't quite what it had previously been and maybe she added arms and legs to some parts of the story also.
3: Maybe she's been on the whiskey as she's recounting
2: the story. (laughs) It is New Year, (laughs)
3: She's probably not even married. <laughs> there was no house, there were no kittens. She's made it all up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing in the story to justify that opinion. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's absolutely
0: true. We're reading between the lines. It's part of the podcast. <laughs> I think that I, I will labour this point once more and then perhaps I can go away and think upon my sins. But the whole thing struck me a bit like Northanger Abbey, Mm -hmm. the Jane Austen novella about a woman called Catherine who becomes convinced that uh, the the person whose house she's staying in has murdered his wife. And and amongst all the other normal societal intrigue that you get in Jane Austen novels, um, this one is sort of a pseudo-Gothic novel. And um, Catherine convinces herself that the general, um, I forget his name, it begins with a T, uh, has murdered his wife because she decides that he's not sufficiently sad enough that his wife died about nine years ago. And it's basically all in her head. And that's what I was getting when I was reading this story, whether or not it was deliberately all in her head or her exposure to gothic stuff got her in a tizzy, um, and then that's what allowed this to happen. The whole mistaking cats for ghosts, etc. Do you
3: think she comes comes off well in this story? Because there are elements of it, I feel, are quite self-deprecating. And she's explaining when she's trying to strike a match and her hands were shaking too much and her knees were wobbling. There's obviously a bit of bravery involved going downstairs in in the middle of night when you can't reach your maids and confronting either a ghost or a burglar. But I mean... For most of this, she does come across as being quite nervy. So I wasn't sure whether or not this is a story she would recount. What sort of way do you think she would recount this? I mean, would this be a um, an amusing after-dinner party kind of a tale, or is this like a confessional? No, I think perhaps kind of falling between the two stools a mm. bit.
0: I think this is maybe a... This is a thing where she's sat down and people are telling stories, and she goes, "Well, I've got a story mm. for you."
1: Yeah, I think it's a bit of entertainment, isn't it? It's slightly at her own expense, but it's a it's a good yarn that she wants to share.
0: Is that a cat? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I think she she does laugh at herself a little bit, and um, especially when she she hot foots it back upstairs to bed and nearly faints with all the excitement. <laughs> she does laugh at herself, and I had I had read it as being perhaps at New Year, everyone gathered in a parlour, all telling tales, and certainly I feel this one um, may have been embellished somewhat from the actual <laughs> the actual happenings.
3: Actually, now you say this, and much to my annoyance, I didn't actually take a snap of this, but there was a poem, I think, in the December nineteen oh nine. Uh, Christmas issue. It was basically called Christmas Day I think it was and it was just a a nice little poem about what you could expect on Christmas Day and one of the lines I'm paraphrasing here but it's something along the lines of uh, old dames sit around fires telling tales Um, so maybe maybe on the Maybe that's the kind of idea that this is. Maybe it's just, you know, like you say, it's a gathering around the fireplace, very much in the style of the people's friend would be read anyway. Um, and this is just a, a little anecdote just to to, to scare the kids or, or you know. <laughs> <laughs> or again, just account for the lack of whiskey. You know, it's definitely yes. definitely the cat.
2: <laughs> it has to be said, it is, it is very entertaining. Yeah, it
1: definitely is.
0: And uh, I think having come to that conclusion after all of my cynicism we should probably leave the episode uh, there for now Uh, so it just remains for me to say thank you to Lucy for her duration and for joining us for the chat thank you to Angela and Barry as well and thank you at home for listening and until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story from the friend to you cheerio thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story, and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We'd be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £8, and that special offer is available until the 31st of May, 2021. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Haste you back.
4: There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end And is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend A charming little journal is the friend Of good things it is such a happy blend That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure The friend to friends in trouble recommend They won't be happy till they get the friend